This is James C. Burns, Sergeant Frank Woods of Call of Duty Black Ops. You're listening to GamerNode.com. Welcome to episode 24 of the Versus Node podcast. I'm Edward Inzato, editor-in-chief of GamerNode.com, and I'm here with the crew. First, we have drinking his Colt 45. In case of his normal bag of peanuts, Dan <laughs> has a Colt 45 this evening. Yeah. So listen for the gunfire in the background. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. How's everyone else? We are. I, I think I'm doing pretty well, even though my ankle is destroyed. But oh, no. that's neither here nor there. Uh, I feel like every time I talk to Eddie, he's like, yeah, no, another limb fell off today. Not a big deal. <laughs> Getting five, five surgeries for it. <laughs> By the way, I did it Eddie. playing Quidditch. No big. <laughs> Eddie and his Quidditch. Yes. Hardcore. I We're also here with uh, the two guys you just heard. Um... I guess we'll go to Jason Finelli, our local grill master. How you doing, Jason? Doing well. And and believe it or not, I actually learned how to use an actual grill. So I am grilling in more ways than one. You learned for the first time how to grill? Yeah, well, moving into my own house, I kind of have to you know, oh, okay. learn how to do stuff on my own. Yeah. So I've, in, the, in the month that I've been here, I've built a mower. I've, I've learned to grill. Um I've paid mortgage. It, it's it's bad. I need to go back to when I was like six years old, and the only thing I cared about was beating Super Mario World again. You're a man now, my son. This adult uh, shit built sucked. a mower? Yeah, well, I was kind of thinking about that one, too. Well, it, it came... It, I didn't, like, put the engine together. The core of the mower was fine. I had to put the wheels on and the handle on. Oh. Yeah. It, it's not like I was... <laughs> far less but, remarkable than what I was imagining. Hey. I was thinking a riding mower. Like, I was like, wait, <laughs> wait until you have to do this. hood out of steel. No, no, no. It was tempering. <laughs> I am no blacksmith. I attached parts. Creative. Other than that, I'm doing okay. Awesome. Awesome. Was just Was it just like Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts? I okay, no, that. nobody played that game. All right, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> no love for Banjo-Kazooie on the 360. Nope. Oh, man. And last but not least, we have Michael Murphy. We never call you Michael. Is that... Do we do not call you that for a reason? Um, so, hi. <laughs> not 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 specifically. Okay. I mean, I just prefer Mike or Murph, so... Okay. Also, and whenever somebody calls me Michael, I feel like I'm in trouble, because normally it's either my professors or my mother who call me that. Michael. Yeah. What's your middle name? <sighs> Walter. Michael Walter Murphy. Oh, shit. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, crap. I'm in trouble now. Oh, um, man. Those are actually really cool initials. MWM. MWM. That's that's pretty cool. Modern Warfare Murph. Yeah, I think we discussed <laughs> I like that. Anyway, um, let's. Uh, we've actually got a ton to talk about today, um, so we should probably get into it before the podcast ends up being 80 hours long. So um, this time around, we're we're hot off the heels of some news and things and stuff that that have been happening, and um, we are going to talk about. 
the land of digital opportunity. What is that? So what we're talking about is just the new opportunities in game development that we've seen uh, arising over the past, you know, recent years, recent months, recent days, whatever. Um, so one thing that has been big for a while now has been crowdfunding. Um, and I, I was thought, thinking about this uh, earlier, and I, I thought to call them gold rush games because people are like, oh my goodness, there's all this money available out in the internet from the people who really care about games. Let's go get it. And then, you know, they build games. So we had things like Kickstarter, which has been uh, really the the most uh, successful and has gotten most of the limelight with Double Fine and uh, Wasteland and Shadowrun, Banner Saga, and so many more. Like, th these games have reached... 3 million, 2 million, um, tons of them were over the $100,000 mark. It's it's just incredible. And then there are other very similar crowdfunding websites like Rocket Hub. We've seen uh, a number of games earning you know, over $1,000 to get started. People use it just to get a copy of something like RPG Maker to get their game started. Um, tabletop RPGs, all that stuff. And then uh, another one is Indiegogo. I've seen a lot of tabletop RPGs over there, as well as iOS games. And there's this uh, pretty cool-looking platformer, earned about $2,000. Some RPGs, just a ton of, ton of stuff out there, which is really crazy, um, because it's making funds available for people with great ideas who would have never been able to get those ideas out there. So... Um, Obviously, in that list, I mentioned a handful of very popular companies and franchises that are raking in the most money, you know, along with the, the lesser knowns and the unknowns and the really small teams. And I think it's important now to talk about those small teams. And I wonder if perhaps seeing the success of these games that are by sort of established developers... Um, maybe it, there's a misconception that these avenues are uh, really helpful to the little guys, but we do see you know some of them getting through. Um, do you guys think that you need to be in some way notable uh, before you ever get on Kickstarter, or do you think that these are truly valuable uh, resources for for someone like you know me? If I wanted to build a game and, and had a good idea, which I probably never would because I'm not creative, um, for someone who's really small, do you think that's a, a, a really useful avenue for those kinds of guys? I think it's a catch-22. I think <clears throat> in order for you to be successful, the answer is yes. And when I say successful, I mean like double find successful, like who like, is successful. Like you have to have some credit to your name. Uh, you know, some sort of accolade to where you can say, you can trust me with that much money. Right. Uh, yep. Uh, but the whole model is built around the idea that nobody knows who you are, and that's that's the point. Of, you know, you're, you're trying to get these these folks who can't uh, who can't get into relationships with the publisher to pay them to make a game that they will then pay off later, right? Um, it's it's a, a fundamental seed change for sure um, about the financial investment of the game and who's who's investing in it. But I think more than that, it's 
it's just how people think about games. It's uh, how do you, how do you think about where the game comes from? Uh, do you think you know when a kid buys Call of Duty, does he think about the programmer at Infinity Ward sitting there slaving away, you know, giant whip coming down from Kodak and just like sweating and blood and tears and all these things? Or you know, but then you have uh, a Kickstarter and it's like there's a video with this goofy looking hipster on the cover and he's like hey guys i made a game it's stupid but you should give me money and then and then you pay for it and he's like really happy and you almost have like a relationship with him with the developer and and the game itself is no longer just a game it's it's a conversation it's like you're you're talking to someone uh about the things in the game and i think that that's pretty remarkable right that's i i think you can't really underestimate that and i think that's one of the reasons why I, a few of them have been so successful is because people feel that connection and that, and that that's what they find so valuable. That's what is, is worth that kind of money to them is not so much the game itself, but the being a part of it and having that connection with the developer. Yeah, I guess, I guess maybe it's uh, short sighted to think of it entirely in, in terms of finances without considering that uh, human component. That's, that's a really good point. I'm half with you, half not with you here, because, yes, it is good. Like, we were talking earlier about um, notoriety and double fine and all that, but I think the most important thing for a Kickstarter or something else to be successful is just an interesting idea or a good idea that people are like, wow, I could really see myself wanting to support this. And my evidence is Ouya. Did anybody know what Ouya was 19 days ago when that Kickstarter started? Mm-hmm. No. It was just this little console that people were like, well, what the hell is this? Then they watched the video. Then they saw stuff about it. And as of recording, right now, 44,000 people, almost 45,000 people, have donated close to $6 million with 10 days still left. That, Hmm. to me, this OUYA is with the power of Kickstarter. If the idea is good and people can see that the idea is good, then you should have no problem gaining the money that you need. Now, a lot of the times the idea is good because of the people it comes with, like Wasteland 2 and Double Fine. But stuff like this can come out of left field and impress just about anybody. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to say that Ouya is an anomaly, but, like, isn't everything on Kickstarter? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I, just, I just want to discount it and be like, no, nothing else is like that. But, like, everything is like nothing else on Kickstarter. <laughs> Um, and, and it's also good to revive old franchises. We've already talked about Wasteland 2. I believe there's a Leisure Suit Larry Kickstarter somewhere on here. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's one of the more successful ones. But then there's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> but then there's a lot of original projects, like um, Ryan Payton, who was responsible for the Metal Gear franchise, um, specifically Metal Gears 3 and 4. He's developing a game called Republic for iPhones and iPods and PC and all that. That's the only thing to this day that I've kickstarted. And I'm not going to lie, it's because of him, not so much the game. I read about the game, it sounds great, but I trust him. Mm. So I think there's also something to be said about notoriety begetting success as far as a Kickstarter is concerned. For sure. You think Double Fine would have made $3 million if they were a brand new new company saying, we're making an adventure game, give us money. No, it was Double Fine. I mean, so, you'd have to have I, one hell of a pitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's it's pretty much about like having a good idea and also knowing how to like you just said Eddie how to pitch and advertise the idea 
both on your on your Kickstarter site uh, through your video and you know through social networking and stuff like that because the UU was a very good idea, but it also had a very good pitch and a very good presentation, as I'm assuming from what you've said of the video, Jason. And you know, what if what if its presentation or, or whatever was you know like Dan said, like just some random hipster going, "Hey guys, we we got this console we want to make and um, runs on Android, and you can make stuff." And yeah. <laughs> that would if not they, be effective. We <laughs> no. would not have taken off based on that. So essentially, you have to be a good filmmaker in order to make a good not, Kickstarter project. Not, just, not, right. not really a good filmmaker, just a good advertiser and yeah. a good marketer. Good bullshit order. You have to be able, yeah, exactly. You have to be able to sell your product and sell it well along right. with the good idea. To be fair, in today's marketplace, you're not going to sell a game without some footage. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or at least some semblance. You know, they showed builds of the Ouya. Or, I mean, I again, I, I just want to keep saying that, like, oh well, this isn't like anything else. Like Double Fine, they didn't really have to show anything. They just showed Tim Schafer's face, yeah, silly face me. and silly hair. And that picture that of him worked. staring at his computer. That's all I needed. <laughs> no. Uh, there's there are a lot of folks that, and this is probably just like inside game journalism because these folks think about it all the time. But I've talked oh. to a number of people who have such a malaise about Kickstarter at this point, and it's probably because they have to you know, report on each of them. Well, right. <laughs> but they're just at this point, everyone's like, another Kickstarter, come on. But like, it's still a very viable platform for funding. Well, he, here's my issue with it. Right now, these Kickstarters are in the give us money phase. What happens if a popular Kickstarter can't come through with what it promised? And all of a sudden, it's not giving out the rewards that it promised it would. All of a sudden, people are not going to be donating that's, Kickstarter. That's an issue. Yep. See what I mean? So so they have to be – I guess they have to have a plan coming in that they can give what they say they're going to give. Like back to Ouya, um, if you pledge 1337 or more, they give you what's called the Elite Developer Special – you receive the developer special, which is the, the thing before it, plus the email equivalent of an hotline into Ouya, a closely guarded email address that gives you direct access to the team and priority handling. Wow, that's dangerous. Um, you and a friend are also invited to the Ouya launch party in Los Angeles. Woohoo! 200 people. Wow. Oh, pledge that. Wow. But that's 200 people that now have direct contact with the people that are developing Ouya. What happens if they don't like the console? Hmm. That's 200 people that can now say, hey, can I get my money back? And just spam the shit out of them. Because this is the internet, after all. Nobody has any manners. I can't wait until someone doesn't follow through on it. Just because what a shitstorm that's going to be, right? Yeah. yeah. It's just like everyone because, uh, loses their faith, and they're like, is Kickstarter dead? And hell raises up. And, I mean, you know, people <laughs> are just going to freak out about it. It's going to be so Well, the question I have is, is um, does Kickstarter have any kinds of, like, terms of use or, like, a user agreement or anything where, like, it would state if you fail to, you know, produce the product that you aim to put out with the money that you were given, like, that you would be required to pay all the people back? Well, could, I hmm. think that yeah, I think Mike's right. I think there is something to that effect, but I mean, there's there's also going to be things where it's shades of gray, right? You're not necessarily you could deliver the product and it just sucks or something, you know? Yeah, something like the quality can't be written into those sorts of. But I think yeah, but I think Mike's right. If if it's there's some clause on Kickstarter about that. Here's uh you know a counter to 
them not delivering, do you think that perhaps the reason you're seeing mostly uh, well-respected and trusted names in game development being the only ones who are successful, or maybe not the only ones, but being the most successful on Kickstarter is because this model has yet to really be tested, and perhaps when the Double Fine Adventure and Ouya and um, whatever else, Shadowrun and, and Wasteland 2 all come through and are excellent, then perhaps people will be like, oh, let's give our money to, to a bunch of other people on Kickstarter too. Like, is that... Is that optimistic? It is optimistic. (laughs) Is that overly optimistic? (laughs) No, no, I don't think so. I I mean, I can't see this becoming like a new model for how games are funded. That's like nothing else works that way in American society. I'd be very surprised if this just became the one thing that did work that way, you know? Sort of reverse engineering. Uh, media production yeah like when do you ever see that happen with film or tele you know television Mm, never but hey first time for everything maybe games can do it maybe they can break the mold i like your optimism (laughs) (laughs) so even if even if that doesn't happen um you know, in Kickstarter and and these crowdfunding sources sort of fade into like a little a little boom, a little bubble into history. Uh, we we're still going to have digital distribution, right? And that which is a um, seems to have been a big boon to uh, indie developers and small teams and everything and getting their games out to the public. I mean, there's actually a news story I read uh, just last week about Stardock um, alluding to going entirely digital with their games, which is a company that actually owned its own digital distribution platform, um, which is now owned by GameStop, interestingly (laughs) enough. But they've always been super kind to indie developers. So, I mean, that shows that there's faith within the development community in, in digital over retail entirely and then of course you know steam steam seems to have been i don't know the the general feeling is that it's a huge asset to small developers i mean the steam summer sale alone had 55 indie games in 11 bundles over the course of the sale um just like right in everyone's face because steam uh valve advertised the hell out of the sale and every video game site advertised that sale forced for Valve and all those companies who were who had their games on sale, and that's not to mention even like something like Dear Esther, which was a standalone during the sale. And there's also another new report uh, indicating a rise in Steam users playing on integrated graphics cards, meaning low-end PCs. You know, suggesting that the games that a lot of people are playing on Steam are not big-budget, AAA, large-team titles, but you know, independent games, small team games, uh, less technically advanced games. So that, you know, that that sort of indicates that we're seeing more people playing these types of indie games, and uh, when it's more available and the audience is there, then that's sure to be a help for those kinds of people. But then again, you know, there's always an argument and what a lot of people are saying now is that the low prices and, and deep discounts 
on Steam and you know low prices on iOS are devaluing games, making these consumers feel like if they if they pay more than two dollars, you know, or five dollars, then they're paying too much, or that games aren't worth any more than those uh, deeply discounted prices during the Steam sale. So, you know, a lot of people are saying that. And then people will, like, Runa Games CEO came back uh, just a couple days ago also saying, um, well, that's not really true for us anyway, because he said he sees several thousand percent increases in units and revenue on days of Steam sales, and then double the normal unit sales for as much as a few weeks afterward. So, I don't know. There's a lot going on with digital distribution. Do you guys think that uh, sales like that and the model that something like Steam is presenting with you know bigger discounts for games over time, um, do you think that's going to devalue games or do you think that it really helps to highlight games that would otherwise have been passed over? I think that anybody who believes that 2 to $10 is too much for a game nowadays is clearly smoking something ridiculous. <laughs> you, I mean, you price a game at $60. You have to deliver $60 worth of game. If you price a game at $5 and you deliver a game that someone would normally value at 20 to 30 you're automatically building a ton of clout just on that. Also, hey, look at free, uh, freemium, free to play. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you know, microtransactions. It's a whole nother world where they're saying our game's worth nothing. What's <laughs> 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 actually worth something are these stupid hats <laughs> or or ad, you know avatars or what have you. You know that's what we actually place value on and what the consumers place value on. And as it turns out, what is hugely successful then let me throw this out there humble indie bundle 5 which if you haven't bought it you're insane because it's so good um run down the list real quick amnesia bastion limbo sorted sorcery psychonauts lone survivor super meat boy and yeah i I mean it's not great but Braid's in there too you know nobody (laughs) likes braid but they threw it in it was sort of a what's that game (laughs) that's a great bundle <laughs> um, yeah, except uh, for Braid. Yeah, except for Braid. It's Braid's awful. It's, like I don't even want that virus on my computer. <laughs> 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 but humble indie bundle. For those of you who don't know, the model is that hey, you pay what you want. And they did. They were a little bit clever with this one. They said if you pay up, you know, at the average, if you pay just over the average of what everyone else is paying, which changed the whole time it was there, uh, then you also get all of the soundtracks. So mm-hmm. I paid like a dollar more and got every soundtrack to all of those games. That is so smart too, because I yeah, mean, it yeah. obviously means that that average is going to continually go up. Right, which is exactly what happened. Yep. They made five million dollars, five point one million dollars. Yeah, um, very smart. Originally, you could pay that's, like a penny. That's a really, I mean, it's a little bit Kickstarter, right? Where they're saying you pay what you want, you get involved. How you you could pay actually one cent, and you could still get all of these games. They're trusting in the good of humanity <laughs> in order to make money. How crazy is that? Stupid. Work, though. That's really dumb in a capitalism system. I should go buy every humble indie bundle for one penny. <laughs> That's also something that you know is you now do in the internet age is you don't have to worry about you know 
putting these games into like a compilation onto a compilation disc and then send it out to retailers to have to sell that and that takes out so much in manufacturing costs if you just you know upload the games to the internet which costs you practically nothing it's it's so much easier and it's so much easier to just say hey we've got this here download it pay what you want doesn't matter because chances are if enough people download it we're gonna make a huge profit because we're not paying to have the game shipped out anywhere yeah the overhead there is seriously reduced I personally can vouch for the validity of Steam and how it does not devalue anything because with that sale, you'll notice that most of the things in that sale were older with a few exceptions. Not like, you know, they weren't discounting the most recent games. They were discounting stuff that had been out a while. Like I'm looking at the stuff that I bought in this sale, the original Borderlands, the original Darksiders, games that, not that I necessarily missed, but games that I want to play again um, before their sequels come out. The Thief series. Or Thief series, <laughs> that, that was another one. I bought a Double Fine pack that was Costume Quest, Stacking, and Psychonauts. I picked up the Jedi Knight um, pack of five old school PC games for 12 bucks. Right. And there are also games that I wouldn't have tried. Lesser-known games, Legends of Grim, Legend of Grimrock, Magicka, um, Dear Esther. I bought Dear Esther. I mean, Dear Esther is the most minimal definition of video game of, that I've ever experienced. But it was, some, it was the best $3, one, part of the best $3 I spent in this sale. Uh, I don't think it's devaluing anything. If anything, it's giving value to things where their value has already decreased. Yeah. Well, would I expect them to release, say, Borderlands 2 in September at a $10 sale price? No, of course not. I fully expect to pay $60 for that game when it comes out because I'm expecting, six, as Dan said, $60 worth of content out of Borderlands 2. Borderlands 1, I'm okay with paying $10 for the game and all of its downloadable content because it's pushing three years old. So yeah. it's not like it. It's not like they're automatically bringing out Black Ops Two for six bucks. Right. Black yeah. Ops Two is still sixty dollars in November when it comes out. These are games that you may have missed. These are games that you would not have played otherwise. And these are games that maybe you played on a, a, another console that you're trying on the PC for a first time. Like I bought both Left 4 Dead's. I bought both Portals. I've played them both. I love them both. But on the 360, now I can play them on the PC because I have a PC good enough to play these games now. Woohoo! So, I mean, it, it saying it automatically devalues games to me a little hasty. Yeah, yeah. These are <laughs> games where their their sales heydays have long have been gone a long time ago too. Right. So it's not like these games are be selling left and right or anything. If anything, they're they're selling like maybe at best like the ones that are like a year or two old, maybe a couple hundred copies a week at best. Yeah. You want you want to talk devaluing? Let's go to Amazon. Amazon 2 weeks after Spec Ops the Line launched, launched at $60 on June 29th. On July, what was it? 12th, I believe, I purchased a digital copy from Amazon for $25. Good for you. $25 for Spec Ops the Line. You want to talk about devaluing? That's a company who said this game's not selling as fast as we want it to, so let's dip the price really. Uh, let's cut the PC price in half so people bu- download a bunch of digital copies. That's where the devaluing happens. When companies that are selling these things are like, "Shit, we're not moving it fast enough. We have to do something now." Mm. 
And I mean, there's also, you could argue that maybe they're even increasing the the perceived value of these games because, like, a lot of these games in the past, in a retail walk into a you know brick and mortar establishment sort of world, um, a lot of these games, kind of like you're saying with Amazon, something like GameStop. They have shelf space reserved. You know, they only have so much space for games. And when games get old and and aren't, you know, the the newest biggest thing, they go into the bargain bin. That you know, all you see is the spine. They're hard to find. You know, they're going to be inexpensive. Also, it's just Steam is able to ask maybe the same price as uh, those older games would would uh, get in a brick and mortar establishment, but be there for everyone to see. And, you know, I've actually seen people arguing that the games that they find on Steam sales are not even the biggest discounts that are out there. That's true. I mean, I, I, there were there was a sale like a uh, Spec Ops: The Line was on sale yeah. as part of the Steam Summer Sale for thirty four fifty. Right, which the is ten dollars so more. Yeah. Right for for ten dollars more than what I paid on Amazon. So it's not even the, and a lot of the time it's not even the best sale around. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The point that Jason raised that I'm more interested in is this idea that newness has a price. And what at what point does that newness premium wear off and how much um and is it different for each game? Kind of seems like it is maybe with Spec Ops, I don't know. Well, Spec Ops was a highly touted game, like a highly a critical success, but commercially I guess it didn't do as well as they thought they did. To me, the newness factor and being and willing to being willing to pay for new is only as viable as long as the companies that sell it are willing to advertise it as new. So like how many people the Spec Ops the Line was was pretty well advertised television commercials and uh, posters in the stores and 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 banners on websites stuff like that. But after it launched all that stuff stopped. You think anybody knows about Spec Ops The Line other than the guy who goes into the store, looks at the case, and goes, hmm, this could be interesting. Right. Yeah, the people who are on Steam who see it come up on a sale. Those are the people who know about it. Exactly. So it it, it kind of hinges on the marketing and advertising of these titles to keep them new. Out of sight, out of mind, basically, is how I think about it. So you're saying that if they kept advertising a game for like – a year that it would still be worth $60. If the game is as good as advertised, yeah. Well, then well, but then what, I think there's Okay, so the game's that. as good as advertised and they don't advertise it. So you're saying without that advertising a game that actually is worth $60, you're going to pay less for. It happens all the time in retail. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Psychonauts is a great example. What well, 900,000 Don't you feel like it's bullshit? Oh, I, absolutely. I didn't say okay. it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, just, that's just the way – that's just business. That's just the way the business world works. People are going to pay um, for the game that they see and have exposure to and have information about. They're not going to pay for a game that they've never heard about or that they've never seen anything from. And from the retailer's perspective, it's it's always going to come down to numbers and, and time. You know, over time, then there's likely to be – uh, a larger install base for any given game, so therefore there's less opportunity to make money on that game, regardless of whether they put forth the same marketing push uh, as they did, f- as they will do for a new game. 
You know, right. it's like you know, you have ten people say, and and in the first week, five people buy it. Now you only have you can only sell five more copies copies of that game. Whereas if you just bring out the new game, now you can sell ten. Right, and and the problem is a lot of these titles that get pushed aside are the titles that, you know, the little guys like we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah. Perfect example for me is Braid. Braid came out in two thousand seven. I didn't play it until two thousand ten. I didn't even give it a passing thought when it launched on the uh, Xbox Live. You know why I played Braid? You, but that's because <laughs> I, I wouldn't, wouldn't let it rest. It. I wouldn't have played it. I would not have played it if I, if I was not a part of this website. I and that sucks. <laughs> but I can imagine there's plenty of games on there that I have missed that I would love, but I just haven't because they haven't been. I haven't been convinced that it's worthy of my money. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Steam acts as that advocate. Yeah. For those games. Absolutely. I, there's so many games that I would never know about if it wasn't for, like, a little picture on, you know, the front page of the Steam store. Like, what, what is that? I bought the entire Twitter. Magica bundle. I bought the entire Magica bundle because I clicked on Magica, said, hey, what's this, and saw Magica Vietnam. And I was in. Mm-hmm. I'm in, and I wouldn't even have known about it if not for Steam showing me, who this bundle's on sale. What's it got? Magic of Vietnam. How much did you pay? Uh, uh shit. Um, uh, I oh, want to wow, say two ninety nine. I would want to pay that. <laughs> 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 I, I want to say anywhere between two and five for Magic and all of its DLC. Okay, here's here's what I love about the appeal of that, and this also goes for any, not just Steam sales, but any any sale where there's like a two to five dollar game, my mindset going in is like, like I could buy, I I could literally buy two versions of this and not have a full bag of Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> like like that's how cheap this is. This costs less than twenty ounces worth of freedom. Or like or or oh, instead of going you know and picking up the game that released on Tuesday, I can get thirty different games. You know like. At yeah, I can just get 30 games instead of Spec Ops, right? Yeah, well, that's that's the devaluing argument in a nutshell, especially with stuff like iOS. I read a, I think it was a Penny Arcade comic where the one guy was playing a $40 3DS game, and the other guy was like, that's fine, I'll enjoy my $41 apps. Yeah. The problem with that is the quality of the $41 apps might not match the $40 3DS game. You're going to tell yeah. me that, that Angry Birds cut the rope and where's my water are as good as a full-fledged Pokemon White 2? No. Not any day of the week. I think Dan's about to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say I'm with Jason on this one. You guys are fools. You don't even know. I'm not an Angry Birds fan at all. I'm sorry, but like... Fruit Ninja is fun to like to do to play on your phone for like five minutes if you're bored. But I mean, it's no like Kingdom Hearts uh, 3D Dream Drop Distance. Right, but here's the problem: if if the only experience a gamer has is that five minute game of Fruit Ninja, then the entire medium is then devalued in that person's mind. If they're not going to take the time to venture into consoles and PC and stuff like that, if, they're, if their entire gaming life is going to stick to the phone, then an entire industry is lost on them, which could be a problem. Well, 
there are so many different types of gamers, and, you know, not everyone is going to be Jason Finelli, you know? Aww. You know, you, you value a certain kind of game and a certain experience, but, you know, Mr. Crabtree Dan <laughs> might be only into games where you throw birds at things, you know? So if that's if that's what's valuable to a person, then I wouldn't say that that's devaluing the games or or removing their or saying that they're missing out on an industry because they're consuming what appeals to them still. Right, and but it, it it's almost like they're they're scratching the surface. You know what I mean? Well, isn't isn't it a good thing that they're scratching the surface? I mean, how do you know that? that's going to be the only game gaming experience they get like oh, what don't. if they start what if they start playing like angry birds and fruit ninja and they're like hey these games are fun and then they start looking at like 3DS games or you know indie games on XBLA and stuff like that and they're like oh this is fun too then they get into the free uh free to plays and the next thing you know they're in on the $60 games i mean oh yeah i'm, think, I'm sure think yeah far but... back on it the the games that we used to play when we were all young on like in televisions the NESs of the day those games were all pretty much the equivalent awesome. of what color apps are these days <laughs> how much did a, a all... nes game cost back in the day 40 50 bucks probably yeah was it really for like 250 kilobytes of content yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I was under the impression that it was cheaper back then. That it was no, like thirty no, or forty. No. Well, maybe maybe thirty or forty, but like Super Nintendo era, I know for a fact. I was looking. I remember this vividly. Sixty. Seeing, seeing sixty, seventy dollar games in like Sears. Yeah, I saw like a few games that were sixty dollars. I remember as clear as day. So, uh, Super Street Fighter Two, the new Challengers. That's weird. That's the one I saw. And Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger. Dude, bizarre anecdote. Um. My house was on fire one time, and the only time – okay, this is – I was oh, maybe like 12. Whenever Ocarina of Time came out, we had just gotten Ocarina of Time, and we had paid $90 for it because this was like just after it came out. And we got it you know, from some guy who sucks someone's dick and got the game. Uh, so, and so that's what the dick sucking was worth is $40 markup or whatever and so our house is on fire and the only thing I grabbed, I didn't grab pants I didn't grab a, another human I didn't grab anything I didn't even grab N64, this is how stupid I am, I didn't grab the N64 I just grabbed the cartridge of Ocarina of Time and ran out into the snow tell me it's in the N64 and like you pulled it out of the N64. Yes, yes. I have to imagine my reasoning was like the save files on there. I can still go to Nathan's house. It'll be fine. Yeah, that's true. The value of games. There you have it. Yeah. More than life. More than pants. Yeah. What about dick sucking? I don't know. How did that work? I don't know. Oh, goodness. Now, I'm thinking about, um, like, we've covered Steam, but what about the way that other distribution platforms work for people trying to make games? You know, there, there are a lot of different ways that you can present your game to the masses. So, PlayStation Mobile was recently rebranded at E3 2012, 
And basically what that is, is it lets anyone develop games with the uh, PlayStation Mobile Development Assistant, which is basically their SDK, and then publish on the Vita and other mobile platforms like Android devices uh, via the PlayStation Store. And they pay $99 a year, and they can publish unlimited games. So that right there seems like, oh, wow, I can pay $99 and publish as many games as I want to the real PlayStation Store. Um, but, you know, people look at that negatively as well. Like, uh, I read an article on Gamma Sutra where the author asked if PS Mobile would end up like Xbox Live indie games, um, which was supposed to be very open and cool for people looking to develop indie games and actually kind of ended up um, diluted by a bunch of junk like Avatar games and Minecraft clones, you know, and making it harder, making it more difficult to find, you know, those those real indie gems amid the rest of the crud, you know. And um, then there are PS minis, which are tiny games, kind of like old NES games, I guess. Um, but they don't have trophies, they don't have multiplayer, they can never have DLC, and but they can be played on a PlayStation, you know, on the on the PS3 or on the PSP or on the Vita, um, and they can be great. I reviewed Where's My Heart, which was awesome, but they just they don't get marketed at all. They're they're sort of shoved in the back of the PlayStation Store, which is the same thing that happened to Xbox Live Indie Games. So now taking this console downloadable space, there's there's PSN games like regular PSN games. Then there are PS Minis. Then you have P. Now you're gonna have PS Mobile. You have the regular Xbox Live Arcade and Xbox Live Indie games, and probably something else that I didn't even that I forgot already because you know it didn't get the press. So at this point, is it like enough is too much? Like, do you think having all these options is a great thing? Because, you know, as a developer, you you can publish it here or publish it there. Or um, do all the separate spaces make the things that are less stringently regulated, you know, more accessible to anyone? Um, does it make your games now sort of invisible to gamers? Because, you know, everything is just in this pool that's full of whatever people want to put out there is there there's no way to like really rise to the top so i don't know it is it great or is it or is it too much do they need to do they need to like just figure out one platform and stick to it no no some of those platforms are gigantic mm -hmm. xbla xbox live indie games those are huge huge like i mean you look at uh look at a game like bastion that came out on xbla and it came out on PC, and they haven't. They put it. They ported it to Chrome, oddly enough, but they haven't done anything else. And they're just like, "Hey, we don't really want to." And that was it. They're right, doing but, fine. But what I'm saying is, uh, like XBLA is more for your established, sort of bigger developers. It's not for like you know Joe. I made a game in my bedroom last night. Guy, uh, he can only publish on Xbox Live Indie Games. And that doesn't nearly get as much uh, recognition as your normal Xbox Live Arcade. So, like, that's... So it's a question of the marketing push, is yeah. what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 the way that it's presented to the consumer 
could be a good thing and it could be a bad thing. The question I ask is how are these, how is uh, Xbox Live Indie Games and how is PlayStation Mobile organizing these games and sorting these games? Do they have a sorting system for people to find the games easily? Because if it's like the uh, Gamma Sutra article says and it's just like this diluted pool of a bunch of junk, it sounds like uh, uh, XBLIG, they really just have it all just thrown together. Like, you should have, in order for your players to be able to find stuff that they actually want and for the, the, the actual good games to truly stand out, you should have a sorting system where you can sort by, you have the people who submit the games, like, put in information like genre, maybe details on story, stuff like that, like maybe a little description, stuff like that, and then have a, maybe, like, a user review system where games get ranked by reviews or they can get ranked by downloads and stuff like that and actually have a system where you can sort and find and figure stuff out instead of it just being this open wasteland of just a ton of games that where it's practically impossible to find the good ones because you got to swim through like all this endless crap to get to it. Here's a question. What, how does an indie game get out climb out from the wreckage of XBLG into XBLA, this magical land of milk and honey. How does that happen? <laughs> like, what's the demarcator there? Is it just like, oh, Microsoft likes you. They're going to, I mean. Um, okay, so the difference between XBLA and XBLIG, which is, sounds really cool to say. X-Blig. X-Blig. Um, is... On XBLA, you're going to need a dev kit. Um, you're you're not going to need a dev kit uh, for XBLIG. So right there, that's pretty huge. For XBLIG, you just need a, a PC with XNA, with an yeah, XNA subscription. So, I mean, beyond that, like, <laughs> we don't even need to go beyond that. But then um, there, there are certification requirements for XBLA. Um that are not necessary for XBLIG. Yeah, no, that I mean that actually is a huge piece of it. I'd feel like I know a lot more about it now that that's the case. Because yeah, I mean if you have to do it in a certain way, that's why there are so many folks who will make downloadable games for uh, for Xbox or Xbox Live Arcade first, and then it'll come to PSN months later. Is just because they're developed them side by side, but the PSN dev kit is just way more Byzantine, uh, I mean, reportedly, this is what they say, uh, and it's just, like, a lot more difficult to work with. It's not like working with the PCs. That's You have to learn a new language for it. Mm. My only problem with PS Minis and X-Blig and all that other stuff <laughs> is that... <laughs> X-Blig! <laughs> I never know where the hell it is. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's like, that's what I was saying. It's it's yeah back to back to uh, out of sight out of mind. I don't even know to look for them. Matter of fact, I think I only own one PS Mini, and it's Angry Birds. <laughs> I, I mean, and I only did that so I could play Angry Birds on my television. So I I, I wouldn't yeah, even know. I wouldn't even know where to even be. I mean, I'm sure there's a place on the on the PlayStation Store that says PS Minis that I just choose to ignore. But like X Blade, where the hell's that? Is that buried somewhere in the store too? Why if these games are are, are like the starting point for some of these developers, why don't we know about them? That's my only issue. If you, if you want these these people to, if you want these games to be more seen, I think there are better options 
than those two platforms. Yeah. And, you know, there are. There are, like, a ton, a ton of different game-making tools now, which is... It's almost staggering how many different ways to make a game. Like Dan mentioned languages. You're, you're talking about different ways to make games. It's like I, I found a list. Um, I'm not going to go through it all, but just a few examples are like Game Maker. Um, there's another one that actually our friend C.Y. Reed used to make his game Hug Marine called Stencil, which I had never heard about, but he made a game with it, and the game exists. Um a lot of the Wajedi games, the adventure games like Resonance I'm playing right now, the Blackwell games, and um, Gemini Rue, which I reviewed for Gamernode, great game, uh, was made with, they were all made with Adventure Game Studio, uh, totally free development tool. There are a lot of free development tools. There's the, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Mugen, M-U-G-E-N, for, for beat-em-ups, like fighting games. I always called it Mugen. Mugen. Whatever. Yeah. And then, of course, everyone knows RPG Maker has been around forever. People can make some pretty sophisticated games from that. And then, you know, there are the ones we mentioned, XNA, the, the Unreal Development Kit. You know, like, there's so many so many different ways to make games now. It's, it's pretty intense. And there's, there's also a ton of game making, at least at the amateur stage that goes on in, in modding kits uh, or in, like, the, the creation yes. uh, kit uh, for Skyrim or... Like the Gek. Source or the Gek or, you know, any of those things where you're just taking an established framework and you're sort of messing with it a little bit. And if you have um, uh, 3DS Max or if you have Maya or one of those 3D modeling uh, tools, then you can just, you know, you can take an existing... You can take uh, uh, what's now I can't even think of the name of oh you can take a Dovahkiin you can take a Dragonborn and you could give him hooves and you could make him look like Mario who knows I mean <laughs> you know you could do that and then throw him back in the game and then all of a sudden it's a brand new game and it's yours right. and you made it actually so it's actually not even that hard to do yeah so um are you guys familiar with DayZ which is uh a essentially a mod. Days. <laughs> it, it's, it's a days, mod it's, it's a mod of arma 2 combined operations which is yeah. arma 2 and its first expansion exactly and they they took that framework and transformed it into an open world survival horror zombie game right a game of attrition basically yeah it's 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 hard to explain I mean, yeah i mean i want it on its at its core open world survival horror sure but it's 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 maybe not horror. No, 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 no. It can be. It can be because it's it's the horror of people interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. It's very Walking Dead in that it, it, you're almost more worried about humans than you are about <laughs> zombies. Like there was a, a story that came out about a week ago. It was about a guy who tweeted the uh, his experience as his character in Daisy was kidnapped by a group of four. Who then made him act as bait? <laughs> wow! Because in that game, if you die, you start over. Yeah. So you don't want to die. So you do what you can to to stay alive. And eventually, the whole group died, including the guy they kidnapped. And the guy tweeted, "I kind of want them to come back, as it put order in this world." Stockholm syndrome. Mm. But but 
a mod like that, I mean, and that's and that's taking a previously developed game and editing it. Yeah, you don't even need game making tools. You just right. need a you know you need to mod an existing game. You, you need to know how that code works and shape it to what you want it to be, and that is powerful. That's a powerful tool if you know what you're doing. Have Have any of y'all gotten into any of these development tools or modding or anything like that? I uh, I dabbled in Mugen for a while and all or Mugen or whatever the hell it is and all I really did was figure out how to download more characters into my fighting game and just put them on the uh, this character select screen. But there were some people who would make who would draw, animate, and and create a, a fighting game character out of nothing. Like there are there are. Uh, Two notable examples that come to mind are Homer Simpson and Peter Griffin. Someone made both of those guys for this Mugen, and it's like they would fit in any Street Fighter game or any 2D fighting game ever made. They're perfect, and it's it's astounding. I can't imagine the type, the amount of work that went into it. Very. Um, the, the most advanced thing I ever did was figure out how to implement my own music into the stages. <laughs> so I didn't really get into it as far as the development side, but playing it and adding to my game was awesome. I worked on an RPG in, like, RPG Maker 2 or, or 1, like, in, 19, what, 1996 or something. Like, Dude, yep, I remember doing that. Like... It was all castles all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so, but that was it was very rudimentary at that point, so I, I would have to say no. <laughs> That I haven't really gotten into it. I wanted to do the Gek and like like get all involved in or any in any Bethesda RPG. That would be like that would be awesome, but never happened. I have a question for you. Where does where would you say that we're talking about modding now and taking um, what well, we were talking about modding and taking things that exist and shaping it into our own? Where does like user generated content fit in all this? Well. I mean that's that's really part of it. Um, like if if these companies are presenting gamers with tools to mod their games, you know, and and games have level editors and and all kinds of user created content, it's basically adding game design as a part of game design. I mean, I played Sleep Is Death. I don't know if you guys got into that, but I loved it, and it's essentially. It's not even a game. It's a game system where a designer and a player play and and create like almost in real time, one on one, as as they're interacting with the game. And that was that was incredible to see. But I mean, you know, in in a less specific or, or less um, unique way, you have those level editors and stuff and. You go into something like Little Big Planet. A lot of times, I would just go to the user-generated content and be like, "Oh, I want to play this Metal Gear Solid level, whatever," because it's almost like it's always a new game. And you know, I wanted to talk more about the modding as well. Like these things, I guess the user-generated content and level editors could start it as well. But specifically, we've seen mods. You know, someone who just sat down with a game they really liked and worked really hard on a mod, they eventually created something that became a game later. Like, you know, I always think about Counter-Strike, right? Yep. <laughs> Counter-Strike was a mod. And now it's Counter-Strike. 
I mean, modding's been around for a real long time. Um, it's, no, it's never, it's not really something new. It's something that's been around for about what 10, 15 years now. And sure. um, but I mean, I don't know if it will like push in, like, usher in like new games through mods. But I know that uh, people who are dedicated enough to making mods end up, you know, learning basic game development and game design through making the mods and it does help like inspire people to to get into game development and maybe try to become an indie developer try to get a job um at a studio or try to go to school for game design i mean and a lot of these people are really good i know when i played uh jedi knight jedi academy i hated it at first but then i started playing this mod known as the Movie Battles 2 mod that made the combat uh, more team-based, more realistic, and made a much better, like, lightsaber combat system than the original game itself. And that became, like, one of the most popular and most played mods in the community. And I spent, like, hours upon hours in there. Yeah, and then, I don't know the story of the person who made that mod, but, you know, did that then give them the confidence and the experience necessary to say, you know what? Maybe I'll start using one of these tools and make my own game. You know, that it just it perpetuates this idea of yes, anyone can work at making a game and have, you know, a degree of success. Well, and also look at um, League of Legends and Defense of the Ancients, like You're right, exactly. Um, that's so huge now. I I remember um I was thinking about this earlier this week when Eddie had brought up the topic for the podcast i remember in age of empires 2 they had a level editor and the lord of the rings movies had just come out i think the first one i think fellowship of the ring and so i like recreated the entire movie in one age of empires 2 map and i'm kicking myself now for not i think you know we got rid of the else and you know uninstalled the game and everything because I would love to go back and see how just piss poor that whole <laughs> sham of a level would be. But I remember, I mean, like you started in this area and there are like these little, uh, I think they were just farms, but those, you know, that was the Shire. And then you had to funnel your way through, you know, there was, uh, uh, well, basically the whole thing. It was, it was a, it was a sight to Bree, see. Rivendell, Weathertop. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see it. I would love to. I, I want to see it too. I'm very intrigued. Oh man! I've, since then, I've actually I have used I'd used Game Maker for a little while. I made a game where a spider shoots old women and they explode. <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun. I've used Stencil before. That's super easy, which is probably why CY used it. It's just like really, really intuitive, user friendly. Um, probably the one I spent the most time in was UDK. Yeah. I've built a couple levels in there. Also pretty intuitive they give you a, a good amount of tools to begin with and and it's free and you know the, there's a new bait every month and um there's a ton a ton of resources online of like folks who have gone before you and done it and they're like hey here's let me explain this system to you and you know show you how to do this um and that's without knowing it, any languages like you don't need to know c plus or, or c sharp or correct. anything like that you're just correct. in yeah so that's right. that's awesome scripting yeah so scripting would normally be like you actually have to write out the code for the script to say you know initiate object yada yada or whatever 
in um, Unreal, for example, I, I have to imagine there are a number of other engines that have piggybacked on the same idea. Um, you have a, a system called Kismet, which does the scripting for you, and there's a visual aid as part of that where you just connect pieces. So you have a door, and then you have a movement, and you connect the two, and then the door moves, right? Um, so, you, yeah, you don't actually have to know how to write out any of that yet. You don't have to learn a language. You just have to have a sense of logic and how to how to process a, a logical flow of information. If you look at, though, um, some of the professional, like if you look at a, a segment code from, I don't know, the first Gears of War, right? That, that was an Unreal Engine thing. Mm -hmm. The lists for their Kismet pieces are, there's probably like uh, a thousand different objects in one little bit. Right. Mm. And that's because that's like someone's job. They just like sat there and created these objects and went through the logical processes for days and days and then eventually years to the point where you actually had a polished thing. So I don't know. My experience with it has basically been like, wow, game development is super hard and you have to be really dedicated yeah. to do something well. And that's that's about it. <laughs> hmm. But it's available. Yeah, it's super available. It's actually like if you want to make something short, if you want to make something that's not all that dynamic, it's more about just the various pieces that you put in. Sure, yeah, it would not be that difficult. But uh, no, I mean like that's a pretty professional thing, and it's it's available. And if you go to their forums, they have a ton of folks who have made their own levels and they post them up there and the folks from X, Y, and Z game development company see them and they're like, hey, you made this amazing Terminator level, right? For, for example, and we love what you did. Here's a job. <laughs> people end up doing that. Yeah. Here's a job. You have won a job, sir. <laughs> you just won a job with this Terminator <laughs> level. Way to go, dude. That's awesome. What's, what's even more impressive is when um, you'll get multiple folks together. You get you know someone who has uh, you know 3ds Max or Maya, and they're really good at modeling and animating, and so they do just that. And then their friend down the street does just level design, and then they combine forces, and then they you know that's that's the most successful projects. It sounds like so mm. specializing. Yeah. And if you're a student, you can get 3ds Max and Maya for free, which I did. Back in the day, and I never used because it's hard. <laughs> but I have them. So just one more thing to close out the podcast. A few thoughts that I had, you know, considering the way that there's so many new opportunities for making games, and um, you know, so many new platforms, and and all these new ways to deliver content to gamers, and it's just a really opportunistic time for anyone who wants to make games. Uh, what happens if the creators suddenly outweigh the players? Like, is that possible? Or do you think that the number of players is always going to be some exponent of the number of creators? And uh, do do all these opening opportunities for development mean endless audience expansion for gaming, or do you think that it'll level off at some point? Because you know we've always been on the rise as an industry. It's so still so young that it never had you know, this leveling off. Well, I, I mean, think that, I, th I think that, um, players will always be, but like, creators will always need players. So I don't know that creators will outweigh players ever. There may be some people who play and create, 
which is a weird little sub-genre, I guess, people that do both. <laughs> but um, I feel like in order for a creator to be successful, it has to appeal to a massive amount of players. Mm. So I don't think that there will ever be more creators than players because not only will it, not only will it mean that there are more games coming out than we can physically play, which is already happening, but it'll mean that the the quality of the product may dip because you know, too many hands in one basket or you know, whatever you want to say. I don't know. I just I don't, I, I don't I, think it's a subgenre. <laughs> All creators are players. play. That's true. And, yeah, and, and, that's true, and it requires well, – that, that's a good point, too. It requires being a player to eventually create, I would assume. No one jumps right in and starts creating without having played ever. So I guess by definition, yeah. by definition, creators will never outweigh players mm-hmm. because all my, creators are players. My point behind the whole UDK thing was to say, yeah, like Stencil, Game Maker, like you can make some pretty – pretty awful games with those you know entry level kind of stuff but if you start getting into an actual development engine or suite like it's super hard like if you want to make a good game you have to really dedicate a lot of time mental energy you have to learn a ton especially if you're doing it on your own certainly if you're doing it through a school um I don't think the creators outweigh players just because it's too damn hard. <laughs> and and thank God, right? <laughs> thank God that weeds out yeah. so much <laughs> content. Well said. Yeah, because I mean, the, the bad stuff that gets made now, could you imagine the shit that would be made if everybody was able to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be horrible. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Everyone is able to do this <laughs> at this point. But, but th- you know, they just don't have an audience, which is nice. <laughs> you know, if um, I had an audience when I made Lord of the Rings Age of Empires 2, I'm sure my fragile psyche at the time would have been damaged. <laughs> <laughs> that thing looks nothing, nothing like the Shire. Where are the hobbit holes, you dick? <laughs> you dick. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, game development is as... super hard. I have a lot of respect for the people who make games. Yeah. Oh, me too. <laughs> I agree with you there. And as far as um, you know, video games leveling off and and as far as like population, I mean, it's bound to eventually. All media eventually level off. Um, okay. when will that uh, be? Dun dun dun. I I have a sneaky suspicion that we're going to be full digital distribution very soon, and by soon I could I it means like you know ten to twenty years into the future, not like tomorrow. But I think that when that inevitably happens and there's only one major platform for games, like PC distribution, that's when it'll level off. Because you now have all of these creators creating for one platform and it's bound to create a, uh, I don't know, like a, like, a, like a leveling off of quality, which will then cause the leveling off of the entire medium. Because if the quality goes down, people aren't playing as much. So if that makes any sense, tell me. Tell me if it doesn't too. But well, I mean, you can't just just because there will be one format doesn't mean there won't be one company trying to sell that format or have their own digital distribution system. You've got Steam right now, but you also have uh, Origin, 
Yeah, and who true. knows how many other developers and publishers will decide that they want to make their own uh, digital distribution system. Who's to know? Who's to say that the uh, the consoles won't go all free, won't go all digital distribution too, and they're just a box to play games on on your TV, and they might have their own systems. Technically, XBLA and PSN are their own systems. It's kind of like yeah, true. I mean, I'm certainly the people that that market the games, that make the games, that publish the games, are setting the tone at a certain level. But I think more and more, um, and maybe I'm just being self-aggrandizing here, but I think more and more the people who write about games uh, have, a, have a big impact on what games are played, how people think about game development or game development personas. Um, I mean, you look at someone like Phil Fish, who's just a, a huge name now, right? Because... <laughs> because he was a dick, and so everyone wrote about it. Mm. <laughs> then he, you know, was in a movie and everything. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a cool thing to be one of those gatekeepers, the the folks who are saying, "Hey, here's what you should pay attention attention to." And um, I, I think we're up to the task, certainly at GamerNode, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I was um. I was having a discussion with my mother the other evening, who of course loves video games, right? She's just can't get enough of them, um, which is just terrible sarcasm. She hates video games. She she can't stand them. But um, you know, she said, "Why? Why do you do this? Why do you?" And I was like, "Because somebody out there still hasn't played Limbo, because <laughs> because there's some stupid kid who's who's like, I'm gonna play Cod Blops too, and I'm like, Have you picked up Braid? Have you picked up?" Bastion, have you picked up any of these games? You know, these fantastic games that are crowdfunded, Double Find Adventure, whatever the hell it is. Like, have you played that? And they're like, no, I saw this stupid thing on the TV where something blew up and I bought it. And I was like, dumb. No, you should be playing this other thing. And I think that's what we're about. That's certainly what I'm about. Um, and I think that that role is increasing in how people are going to buy games going forward. Maybe that's a little magnanimous. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that seems pretty accurate, actually. I'm not, I can't. I can't I think. I think indie developers owe everything to Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys. <laughs> yeah, but no, seriously. Um, the the audience is only limited by the spread of of knowledge, right? Like, yeah. I feel like that's the, what you're saying in a way. They well, yeah, only the spread pay of attention. knowledge used to just be, like, TV commercials, right? Mm, but right. that's very much not the case anymore. Like, there are a lot of people who go online, who go to IGN or go to wherever, and they, they read it, go to GamerNode, and they say, I trust X website to tell me that this game is worthwhile, worth my time. Mm. As well you so should. From, so worth from... my $60 or my $2. Yeah. Ooh. So from the funding... To the to the tools used, to the platforms distributed on, and then finally the the marketing and just the word of mouth and uh, word of pen and keyboard. That's the the way that these indies are going to find the opportunity to really make a mark and and become a big er part of the industry and reach the audience. You know that will expand to who knows where. <laughs> and. We're super important is also yeah. the message. 
Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, awesome. We are super important, and <laughs> and I am, <laughs> and I am super tired. Yeah. And late. It really is. So, but um. That midnight midnight oil. Almost there. Midnight oil. Midnight oil. Midnight oil. Midnight, watch a little bit too much of them Olympics, aren't you, Mr. Murphy? Perhaps just a tad. <laughs> just a wee little bit. Awesome. But yeah, um, just I think it's been a, a great conversation with you guys about all this, and I'm excited to see what else, you know, what this conversation will turn into like a year down the road, you know? So uh, I guess that's where we end it for now, and we'll pick it up when when uh, indies rule the world indies rule the world i I'd, I'd rather revert back to where everything's 8 bit just start all over again press reset <laughs> go back to the good old days so i can relive the ps1 60 hour epic rpg type days yeah yes that'd be sweet it's never yeah. well, it's been it's been awesome thanks for talking absolutely everyone thanks for listening Check out GamerNode all the time. We've got some new, uh, really cool features. Uh, you, you've probably seen Hot Off the Grill by Jason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've yeah. added recently the Sandbox, where we tell you Sandbox. everything about what we've been playing and what we plan to play. I like to sprinkle in a lot of videos, which is a ton of fun. Don't uh, forget uh, first edition of Counterpoint. Yeah, yes. Counterpoint as well. Counterpoint. We're going to have a lot more Counterpoint discussions where we argue which is the most important and fun aspect of a gamer's life. Uh, <laughs> and everything else, you know? Tons of reviews, news, lots of daily news going out there. Uh, just keep it here. We're working on a lot of cool stuff. We're going to bring more of these special features to you uh, all the time. So anyway, this is GamerNode.com, the crew, and we will uh, talk to you the next time.